So I know she's a lesbian and all, but I feel like there were some sparks between McCoy and Rick Moranis in this movie. <laughs> Between her and Moranis, is that because they were like shitting on each other so hard? You that's felt what like, it yeah. was. Yeah, some of their oh, arguments were really heated, but in that way, we're like lovers quarrel. You know, it's a thin line between love and hate and all. Well, and I mean, Moranis like could go either way. Like I feel like if you're a lesbian, Rick Moranis's look might actually be kind of appealing. That's right? what I'm saying yeah. too. Yeah, not yeah, too, yeah. not a hyper masculine kind. No. Of, yeah, yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah, I think that could be could be him, and especially the way he dressed in this movie. Yeah. Side note here, I don't care how much money he's supposed to have in this movie. I don't want to live in a world where Rick Moranis can get Diane Lane. Just putting that out there. <laughs> Doesn't make sense to me. I don't like it. You're uncomfortable with a fable told in an alternate universe where Rick Moranis is having sex with Diane Lane. Yeah, Rick Moranis is just nailing hotties. I don't like it. It's not, I, that's not the Rick Moranis I know. Do you think in real life Rick Moranis has laid pipe on some pretty sweet chicks? Okay, so... I'm very conflicted about how to answer this question because my first instinct is to say no. I don't find anything particularly sexually appealing about Rick Moranis. But on the other hand, he was famous. And as I understand it, famous people sometimes don't have to do a lot of heavy lifting. You know what I mean? Yeah. Honey, I blasted your pussy. It's got <laughs> what oh Rick Moranis is next. We'll move. shut it down. We're not gonna this episode is peaked. We're not getting any better than that. Welcome to Bad Movies and Beer. I'm Cooper. I'm Nolan. And today we are talking about Streets of Fire, a rock and roll fable, and maybe our second 80s musical of the year. Is this musical? It's close. It's very close to a musical. I think it could be counted as one. It felt to me, and we're going to get into this more later, this feels like a theater performance in a movie, right? Like it feels like this would have done really well on stage. Ooh, I would go see a stage version of this. Yeah, I think yeah. it could be incredible as a stage performance. They don't need that many scenes. Like they don't no. need that scenery. It all kind of takes place in some very similar looking places. And the singing... And the action fit really well into stage play, I feel. Even that kind of main drag where most of the stuff happens in the beginning and end of the movie, it's like one street. You see like three or four buildings. They could easily put that on a stage. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great call by you. I like that. Maybe we should start trying to figure this out. Anyone who has a lot of money wants to help fund us transition Streets of Fire to the stage, let us know. If there's a real life Rick Moranis out there sitting on a whole bunch of coin... <laughs> We love to stage Streets of Fire, the musical. That's probably been staged before now. Everything's turned into a fucking musical now. Uh, <laughs> and is that a bad thing? I don't know. Have you ever seen Batter to Hell? Oh, I wish I had. That, that was the very shit that the was. very first CD I ever owned um, was that. You know what? Great songs. The musical made no fucking sense. And I'm worried that would happen here. <laughs> anyway, we're going to be covering all of the uh, ins and outs of this one with some uh, very interesting choices and... Uh, I don't know. There's a lot to say about this movie for sure. So we're going to have a lot of fun telling you about Streets of Fire. But as always, we pair a beer with the movie. Uh, and we got a pretty great connection here. I want to let you talk about it. I feel fucking great about this one. So this beer is from the Old Flame Brewing Company in Port Perry, Ontario. And all their different styles of beer are basically just like for lack of a better term, uh, color names. I don't know how you describe it. Fucking hair colors. So they have a blonde. They have a fucking like Irish red. And they have a brunette. And that's what we're drinking because Diane Lane in the movie is the old flame of our main character. She's a brunette. So I think this is a slam dunk. This is amazing. The movie is called Streets of Fire. We're talking about flames here. It is just a perfect connection. There's so much to it. And you were even mentioned, we think one of the characters even calls... Yeah, McCoy mentions that Diane Lane and our main character, uh, Tom Cody, are each other's old flames. They say it in the movie. I fucking jumped out of my chair. I was like celebrating. It was good. It's pretty amazing. So there's a really great connection here. This brewery sounds like a really cool one. Um, they have two locations. Uh, one in Port Perry, like you mentioned, and one in Newmarket. And they really do specialize in craft lagers. So if uh -oh. you are a lager person, you say, uh-oh, I am a beer fan. I know that you pin me as the IPA guy here. Um, but I'm excited about this, too. It's a Munich Dunkel lager. So I'm expecting it to be a little bit darker to have quite a bit of flavor. So I'm, I'm looking forward to this brunette. I think it's going to be really good. I don't mind a brunette. <laughs> what, as a beer, I'm saying. Oh, okay, good. Why don't we get into it? Yeah, I think it's a good idea. Okay. So we start with some dirty guitar and drums and a title card that tells us that this story is set in another time, another place. And then we immediately get an aggressive wipe to a neon-soaked street. Holy shit, the wipes. It's <laughs> a big movie for wipes, right? Oh yeah, there is a lot in here. I'm loving the song that's opening this. It's got me in the mood right away. 
This alternate reality seems kind of like a 50s, 60s kind of place. New York City or Chicago. They have the L train, right? Chicago, maybe? Yeah, it kind of seems like Chicago in the 50s or 60s. You got kind of a lot of people looking like they are either greasers or they are maybe preppies. And we're going to get something that goes along with that. We've kind of seen those themes already this season. Definitely. And these people are packing the streets. What they're all getting ready for is the big concert from Ellen Aim and the Attackers. She's a local girl played by Diane Lane who is returning home after reaching superstardom and we gather this concert is some sort of benefit show, much to the chagrin of her sleazy manager who is inexplicably played by Rick Moranis. Why is he playing this character? Like, nobody wants to see Rick Moranis as a sleazebag. Well, what's even more hilarious about that is we're going to meet Bill Paxton really shortly in this. Oh, I love it. And you would have loved these two characters to be swept, I think, right? If you had to change the role for the two of them, if Bill Paxton could have been the sleazy promoter. That's and a great idea. It would have been wonderful, right? Great idea. Yeah, it yeah. did seem strange Rick Moranis was that. I think they wanted the character to be kind of annoying, and Rick Moranis is good at that, right? Like, Yes, very much so. And so I think that's why they lent that way but i i felt watching this that you were going to be disappointed at the role given to bill paxton i think you wanted him to play a bigger, bigger i mean part in this, i mean right? oh i always would like bill paxton to play a bigger role in things any paxton's good paxton though let's be honest here so this show that they're doing starts with ellen aim being introduced she runs on stage and launches into a song called nowhere fast and this song is an absolute banger like this song immediately slid into every 80s workout playlist i'm ever going to have in my life it was fucking great. It's a tremendous song. Yeah, it is incredible. It is really, really good. I waited until the credits to see the performances. They were not performed by Lane, right? They were performed or something. No, they were not. Else. But she does a really good job of um, like faux performing. Yeah, lip syncing. Yeah, she's yeah. lip syncing. She's super into it. She knows the words. She is like delivering on stage, and the band around her is doing a really good job too. Yes, and it helps that she's fucking gorgeous. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But what's funny is like Diane Lane is an all-time beauty. She is like still about ten years away from hitting her peak here. Like she is crazy young, and you can tell that like she is a beautiful woman. But she just gets better looking over the next decade. It's insane. And it's funny because I mean it's just the nature of our age, right? Like we would have been sort of just children or this would have just been made as we were born right so diane lane to me i always think of as an older woman like a sexy older woman i never think about her as a young woman so it was hard for me to place her here yeah like i wouldn't have known it was diane lane unless it said so on the like on the credits so i knew it was but when she ran on stage i was like holy fuck is that it's so jarring how young she looks um and again this song is just Fucking tremendous. Yeah, it's great. You know who I knew right away was someone, though? Rick Moranis. <laughs> well, him, Rick Moranis, for sure. And the character that's going to show up very soon. Yeah, we get uh, cut into this performance some shots of a biker gang approaching. They eventually enter the theater through the smoke and shadows, and when the light finally hits them, we see that their leader is Willem Dafoe, looking like a straight-up vampire. Yeah, he's wearing all black. He is as pale as fucking possible. Yep. And he's got that widow's peak, right, or the Dracula peak for sure. There's no mistaking Willem Dafoe. No, but he's super young in this too. Absolutely. He looks incredibly young, but you can tell it's him. Some of the smiles he gives, though, or the facial, uh, I mean, he's known for some dramatic facial uh, That comes up later on in this, But we're going to get some really good ones. Here, though, he's pretty serious. He's just sort of watching the performance. He seems to be enjoying it. What happens as this incredible song ends? Well, the second it ends, him and his goons rush the stage, beat up the band, and drag Ellen away. This causes complete chaos in and around the theater. People are getting hit, dragged, groped, and a nearby cop car is quickly run off the road. There is tons of action happening here. Yeah, I don't know if you noticed. Did you see what happened to your friend Bill here? I did not. He charges the stage. Out of the fans in the crowd, there is one who very clearly runs up to the stage to try to help out Ellen and gets immediately one punched off the stage. And it was our friend Bill. It was pretty funny. I thought that was entertaining. I could tell right away. He has some fantastic high hair in this, by the way. Oh, yeah. The the rockabilly, like the big fucking wall of hair. Yeah. But he gets walloped off the stage and they drag Ellen away. This is really hectic. I don't know if it was the way that it was being shot or the way they were showing it. Like women are being dragged. Their tops are getting ripped off. And there's like all kinds kinds of stuff happening here but i really like the mood and tone being set both by the cuts and by the music yeah the sound and music behind what's happening is really driving the emotion and they're doing a really good job of connecting the two just coming in crazy hot crazy hot here it's a great opening sequence 
Now, one of the women we saw in that opening sequence, Reva, sees the gang driving off with Ellen, and the next thing we see are close-up shots of someone typing a letter on a typewriter asking someone named Tom to please come and help. So cue the hero. Yeah, so now we have our princess stolen, so we need, as in any good sort of adventure fable, we need a hero to come back and to save the day. And we know that our hero is going to be named Tom, right? Because that's what it says in the letter. It's, it's funny watching it happen on a typewriter. Also funny the camera shot that sees it. Like, they almost make the typewriter action seem kind of interesting. It's weird the way that they shoot it. Yeah, yeah we're like right in close. You can see the little gear things moving in that, so that's pretty cool. It's Tom Cody is his name, young, handsome, brooding. He's riding the L train, and once he arrives, he heads to the local diner. And as we quickly find out, he too is a former local, one who has experienced his fair share of trouble. And when trouble pops up there in the diner, he quickly jumps into action. Yeah, so he gets back to the diner, and he meets Reva. We find out it's his sister. At first, I was kind of curious whether it was going to be his like old love or something, but it's his sister who called him back. And when this group of thugs come in, they're kind of their own little greaser gang. We get this sweet little fight where Tom, Cody, our character here, our hero, just kicks the shit out of this group of five guys. To be more accurate, he slaps the shit out of them. He slaps that one guy like 75 times. <laughs> oh, the cut of him slapping the leader back over and over again oh, is so, so good. And then he uses a hat rack, which, I mean, when's the last time you saw a fucking hat rack? It's been a while, yeah. <laughs> he starts mashing them in the face with it and throws one of them through the window and clears that place out. He does. You forgot to mention, too, the cut-off denim shirt under the trench coat is an incredible look with suspenders. He had suspenders on. He is wearing just the strangest outfit throughout this whole thing. He looks like he would have been a conductor of a railroad at the turn of the century like he's got on oh. those pants that have to be held yeah. up there's no belt loops if you don't have suspenders they fall down and then i know he's got a sweet cutoff shirt here yeah. but the rest of the movie he wears like this old school sleeve shirt that looks like he's a conductor yeah yeah and the trench coat too is like pure fucking like uh almost like a private detective just like the one man like oh, it's pretty yeah. good it's a duster right so yeah you oh, this is interesting to me because you mentioned it being a fable kind of adventure that you referred to him as like a prince and a princess. I got Western vibes off this movie, like big time Western vibes. Lone gunslinger rolls into town, town being menaced by a gang of outlaws. He's going to save the day. He's going to move on at the end. Spoiler alert. Like this, I got, I got real Western vibes and this kind of plays into that. I think you're completely dead on on that. I think this feels like a Western. I think a lot of those Westerns are inspired by those same kind of tales and fables though, right? Like all of those stories are kind of the same, but you're right. I think Western is probably a better depiction of it here. Good point by you, though. Those other stories did come first. Maybe Western's bored from them. I don't know. Look at these conversations things we're talking about. What an interesting movie. <laughs> I feel like most of the time we just talk about p***s and c***s. That's so this is a bit of a different <laughs> scenario. Yeah. It is a little different, yeah. I mean, I hope to talk about those, too. But so <laughs> Anyway, he runs these guys off, but we get the impression that they're a lower-level gang around these parts. The real players in this town are the Bombers. That's Willem Dafoe's gang. Also, his name is Raven Shattuck, which to me sounds like an expensive whiskey. Seriously. <laughs> I, yeah, I was surprised to hear his name, and I actually didn't get it here in the movie. It took me a while before I, I got his character name, but you're right. That's a hilarious name. What I'm realizing really quickly here, though, is that like this hero can kick ass, but the person playing him certainly can't act. Oh, you don't think he's good, eh? I mean, he's good at being that brooding, like, I want to fight everyone serious guy. It's either his fault or the person who wrote the lines for him because the lines that he shares while he's fighting to the other characters are just completely flat, like laughably flat. I was laughing at the lines he was delivering most of the time throughout this movie. See, I kind of took that, though, as like they were going for a particular style of like jargon. You know what I mean? Like his stuff is very it's almost like comically heroic. Like, it's heroic to a point where no one would actually talk that way. It's these, like, bold declarations that don't totally fit. They they come off so deadpan to me that it, like, there's zero emotion in the way that he says his lines. And I don't know if that was directed that way, if the lines are written that way. But I, out of, we're going to talk about all this stuff later. I really enjoy this movie. But his acting, to me, or the lines that he shared was the worst part of it. I think he's got the look, though. He's got the look. Oh, absolutely. He looks like a hero, for sure. Yeah. And, and he acts it well. Yeah. Like the, the scenes where he's not talking or not sort of trying to push the plot along or like say heroic things are tremendous. But okay. whenever he's in a conversation with one other human, yeah, it's it's just awful to me, like laughably awful. Well, well, I'll see if I can change your mind by the end of this. You never know. We quickly find out here that he and Ellen are former lovers and former loves. As Reva points out to Tom Cody that what they had was different from all those tramps he used to run around with. And I have to say, you hardly ever hear the word tramp anymore. I miss it. We could start bringing it back. 
All right. Yeah, yeah let's just, just make a movement to strike. Are we allowed to call women tramps? I don't know if we are. No, but we can ask other women to call each other tramps. <laughs> <laughs> That's my strategy from now on. I encourage all the female listeners, and I don't think there's that many, to uh, call, <laughs> to call other women tramps, please. Uh, I might try it on. You never know. We'll see what happens. <laughs> anyway, Reva tells Tom that Ellen has been living with her manager, Billy Fish. That's Rick Moranis' character. And he sets up to have a conversation with him. But first, he swings by his old watering hole where a familiar face is tending bar. That's Bill Paxton. And in case you were worried he wasn't going to be bringing an appropriate amount of sleaze, the first words out of his mouth are, Tom Cody. It's been a long time, pal. How's your hammer hanging? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Paxton. So he's playing Clyde, who is clearly a sleazy, but I mean, no 80s pervs, though, a sleazy bartender. Are you allowed to be a perv in an alternate universe? You know what? doesn't matter. He's not a perv anyway. <laughs> Friendly colloquial greeting between friends. No, I'm, he's not. It's hilarious because I think after that punch he takes in the club, they clearly have tried to cover one of his teeth with black, so it looks like he's missing a tooth, but the makeup effect is so poor that you can see his teeth. That is, is still true. There. I wasn't sure that's what they were going for. I thought maybe there was like some kind of like fucking wooden tooth or a filling, but no, it's very noticeably not missing. I'm pretty yeah. sure they were attempting to make it missing, though, in the look, but it not done well. But how does it get through the editing process? How does no one notice looking at the fucking monitor like, heads up, guys, this is not like real? I don't know. Maybe it was just budget timing, the way that it worked out in the end. I don't know. But I love that you're defending this already. This is good. I, I can tell where we're headed with this, and I like it. You don't it. come after Bill Paxton. Yeah, though. you no. can't say bad things about Bill. <laughs> Bill did not do his own makeup. Can, can don't we, blame Can Bill. we agree? He's absolutely on point here, though, sleezing it up and being a dick. Oh, like he's, he's, a, he's yeah. very effective in this Definitely. bartender role. He's also very effective getting his ass kicked in this movie. Well, that's what happens. He His dickish nature causes him to run afoul of a particularly surly bar patron named McCoy, who we mentioned earlier. He says he doesn't like her face, so she knocks him the fuck out, and she is going to be Cody's sidekick for the duration of the film. Yeah, she's some kind of super soldier. She hops over the bar and smacks him around and then takes a bottle of tequila for her and Cody to enjoy together, and they kind of walk out of the bar together. Yeah, she keeps referring to herself as a soldier and also making it very clear to Tom Cody that he is not her type, so interpret that as you will. Very quickly, I thought maybe they were suggesting she was a lesbian. Yeah, that's exactly what it is, as I said. But at the end of the movie, she says that she's not. Oh, does she? Yeah, she says that she had some other boyfriends who she didn't enjoy. Oh. And I don't know if that's sort of continuing with the thing, but it seemed to me like my assumption, the way that they set this up was that she didn't like men, but later it definitely talks about her having male partners. So I thought huh. it was kind of interesting. It seems to me like she's just not into that style of person. She's kind of, and also kind of like dresses Nats like a tomboy, for lack of a better word, because she in no way or shape or form presents as like feminine. No, no, exactly. Which is why it seemed like they were setting her up as a stereotypical lesbian. But it seems like not. It was interesting. I okay, just thought that was interesting. Not, yeah. She just does not like his type of dude and made me wonder what kind of dude she was into. What's What's interesting, too, is uh, Reva tells her, I think, in the next scene that Tom Cody needs to meet more women that aren't into him, right? Like, that's what she kind of plays an important role here of, like, platonic friend to him, maybe first time ever. And she also seems very wise. She kind of pops in on other characters to be like, oh, you should really do this, you should really do that. She's kind of like an emotional center of the movie almost. Yeah, she's really important to keeping both the action and the people grounded. So I yeah. think you're right. She's a cool character, McCoy character that gets introduced. Do you know the actress who plays so her? So she, uh, it's Amy Madigan, and she is probably most well known for Field of Dreams. Oh. She's the wife of Kevin Costner in Field yeah. of Dreams. Yes. Yeah. Okay, that's why her face is so familiar. I couldn't place her, but I knew that I knew her face. Like I yeah. knew that she'd been in other stuff, but I couldn't think of it. And she's good in this, man. I think I think I think everyone's good in this, truthfully. Either way, they head back to Reva's house to bunk up, separate beds, because as she mentioned, he's not her type. And the next morning, Tom heads out to gear up for the rescue mission, and Reva fills McCoy and us in on some more backstory. Turns out that maybe Cody couldn't handle being the second most important thing in Ellen's life after her music career, so he pushed her away. And he's been living in Heartbreak City ever since. Is this where we transition to Sad Tom? Where we get the black and white uh, music video interlude here. Yeah, he looks at a picture of her and it, it's kind of like almost like a dream sequence. It's kind of weird. Yeah, but we get some good music from uh, our our band, uh, yep. Ellen and the Attackers. And we get a little bit of a musical interlude and it really sets his emotions apart. And this happens a couple times in the movie where 
we transition to music in between action and or feeling to yep. set the mood and and it works well like i thought that that it worked yeah well it's cool yeah and as mccoy says too because he's not a very emotional guy but she says most people who don't have emotions are the ones who have the biggest emotions they don't show it but it's there and it's deep right she's so wise and we know now when he goes into this sort of dream sequence sadness section that he's going to go rescue her there's no way he's not oh big time but we still have to go through the kind of obligatory meeting here between him and billy fish he asks for ten grand for the rescue, and he needs Fish to come along and guide him through a particularly rough neighborhood called the Battery, since Billy Fish used to live there. Rick Moranis here, kind of standoffish at first. He's really leaning into this dick role, but he eventually agrees to come along because that's how much Ellen, or the money he can make off her, means to him. We don't really totally get clear on which one it is. He definitely likes the money he's making off of the success of Ellen Aim and the attackers, for sure. So he's willing to go through and put himself in a little bit of danger here to, to help bring her back. You're saying the action's really good, but I'm struggling with the conversations that are happening between them. And I don't know if it, I don't know why we have such a disagreement there, but I feel like they're coming off pretty poor. Okay, so I, I'm not going to totally disagree with you, but I feel like in this particular scene, there is, there's not much to the conversation, right? Like, basically, he's fucking snapping back at Rick Moranis whenever Moranis is kind of shooting things down. He's got a lot of short, quick lines here. Maybe it's less noticeable in this particular scene. Well, see, in this scene, I had noted that the timing was really bad. Like, the way that mm. the lines are delivered or the way they're coming off didn't seem genuine to me. And I don't know if that means they're trying to play it up harder than it would or whether he was showing less emotion than I think he should. And maybe that's his sort of, like, soldier-broken character kind of person but i i was struggling with it here i'm glad they're gonna go try to get her back though because you know we got to go save the princess i think there's one thing we can both agree on though and that's that there are some strong statements made in this scene about how the upper class treats the lower class you must have been just fucking gobbling this up eh <laughs> um i didn't catch a lot of the um class-based commentary here oh, he mentions how rick Mance buys guys like him all the time and like you know stuff like that yeah there's a little bit of that for sure where he feels like he's the tool and rick moran is the one kind of using it in a way um and i guess that's the commentary they're talking about the people with wealth are always using everyone else for the way that they want them to yeah tom cody class warrior <laughs> so we're gonna go ahead off and venture to the battery to try to go save ellen what what does this kind of look like well, we've got our rescue team now rick moranis figures the bombers are probably hiding her at a dingy club called torchies it's a real knockdown joint no class i used to book bands in there it's right in the middle of a big factory. It's the shits. You'll love it, McCoy. It's just your style. He does not like McCoy. Yeah, it's funny. He keeps calling her uh, a broad or a dame. and He, he says calls he, her butch a couple times, too. And he says he doesn't want to bring her along. He basically says that because she has a vagina, she's useless, which is pretty brutal, right? But uh, she's going to show him that she's a valuable member of both this movie and team. So they arrive in the battery and immediately spot dozens of guys roaming the streets on bikes. And from there, we enter Torchies, where we've got a fairly androgynous dancer shaking their lean, muscular body to a kind of rockabilly song called One Bad Stud. We also see Willem Dafoe. He's shirtless under a pair of leather hip waders looking like an S&M fisherman. He enters a back room where Ellen Aim is tied to a bed and basically implies that he's going to do terrible things to her if she doesn't loosen up and agree to be his girlfriend for a couple weeks. Great casting here because he's creepy as fuck. Yeah, this whole section is pretty interesting. The club itself is um, effectively like trashy and creepy. This strange and androgynous table dancer is interesting too. Uh, it was hard to tell the gender of the table dancer. I'm still not convinced that I know. I think it was a woman, but mostly because of the size of the hips to waist kind of thing. Okay, I was going to say lack of a groin bulge. <laughs> I see we were looking at yeah. different areas. <laughs> That's fair. Um, but it's interesting. I agree. I actually wrote down that he was wearing fisherman's attire as well. Yeah. I thought Willem Dafoe was definitely wearing leather waders, and I, I thought that he was pulling them off. Uh, he is as. <laughs> <laughs> All right. He's so fucking creepy. Um, it's amazing to me that he started his career like with that same kind of character and has just carried through it. I guess when you find a successful niche, you just kind of go with it, right? Oh, and he's great at it. I just can't get over it, though. He's like, if Dexy's Midnight Runner is really into bondage. That's what it seems like. <laughs> anyway. That sounds like a good combination to me. There you go. <laughs> anyway, Billy Fish is about to lead Tom Cody in through a door on the roof when a deranged Ed Bagley Jr. steps out of the shadows and tells them exactly where they can find Ellen. Now, there's a line here I really like from Tom Cody. He tells Rick Moranis to pay the guy for his information, and when he refuses, Cody says, Listen, shithead, you give him some of your money, or I'll give him some of your money. We just did a great threat without actually being a threat, you know? 
<laughs> it's true. You can see that Tom, although being the tool here, the one who's sort of being used by Moranis, is actually the one in control. Well, in this situation, he has the power right now. Yeah. yeah. Well, because Moranis is scared, right? He's scared of this strange man on the roof, and he's scared of the place they've taken him to. He knows that he has control, and he can kind of get away with what he wants here. It was curious to me that this weird, like, homeless prophetic man shows up on the roof. I didn't. He wasn't understand. that prophetic. I was. I was looking at. I thought you'd be looking for prophetic moments. He's not really prophetic. He just happens to know where they're holding her. Yeah, but it was just a strange thing to have that interaction because they already knew they were going there. He just tells them to go where they were already headed. Well, that's what Rick Moran's point is. He's like, why am I fucking paying this guy? We already knew she was in there. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. You want to keep him quiet, so you give him the money so he doesn't go running to the motorcycle gang, right, and tell them you're on your way. So That's you, a good point, yeah. You do that. You pay the money anyway so that it keeps you sort of clear as you're heading over there, and they, they keep heading towards this club, and they're about to sort of divvy up responsibilities here. Yeah, they decide to split up. McCoy's going in the front. Cody's going to come in from above, and Rick Moran, as much to his chagrin, is told to wait in the car and keep it running, and we launch into the rescue. So, McCoy, you're going to go do all the dirty work and take all the risk. Go inside there and do it. She says, just what I've always wanted to do, take on the bombers. And this line to me was bothersome. One, She's just some woman going through town. Yeah, she mentions that, yeah. Right? Why does she know who the bombers are? Well, she or knows what? now because of their conversation. But it just seems like the way that she said it was like... Yeah, I know. I've always... Familiar. Like, yeah. why would I ever want to go after the bombers? I've known them for years kind of thing. So that kind of bothered me. But I also thought it was hilarious that Tom sent her in to do all the dirty work and he was just going to hang out on the roof. Well, he says you got to prove yourself. She's always talking with your big soldiers. Like, now's your chance. Show me. <laughs> He literally says it in the movie. That's the thing. I know, but is his job is to save her, and he's just going to stay on the roof with a fucking rifle? Yeah. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> and she's going to go in there, put herself in danger, and try to go figure out where Ellen is? Exactly. All right. Okay, here, here we're going to go. We're about to get to a point in this movie where I feel like you're just fucking trolling me, by the way, but uh, we'll get back to that in a second. Uh, so it starts out with mixed results as Cody gets deafened by a steam whistle, and McCoy has to pretend to like just for a second, though, then she knocks out the creep who was moving on her and crashes the bomber's poker game, gun drawn. I'm not so sure she doesn't like She just didn't want his um, But she does a good job of taking him out and getting to the point where she wants to. She finds Raven and the other sort of big hench members of the bombers, and she pulls the gun on them. I'm not quite sure why she did that. I Just to keep them busy or yeah, to keep them distracted definitely. while Tom was... Um, trying to figure out how he was going to get to Ellen, I guess. Well, yeah, Tom Cody causes a bigger distraction outside by sniping a couple of the bombers' motorcycles with his rifle, which, of course, causes them to explode. Now, I'm curious, does this bother you as much as when someone shoots a car and it explodes? Because, in theory, a motorcycle would be much easier to blow up. You're fucking trolling me. No, he's, listen, I, he's I, got a rifle. It's high-powered. I feel, when we got to this part of the movie, I felt like I was being trolled. Because we know, if you've listened to this podcast, or if you listen to some of it, it fucking irritates the hell out of me when someone shoots a car with a gun. It just infuriates me. I get so grumpy. And it blows up. Well, yeah, when yeah. it blows up. You can shoot the shit out of a car. If it doesn't blow up, <laughs> I don't care at all. But if you shoot a car with a gun and it explodes, it makes me so angry. And in this moment, we have him with a rifle, and... A guy is doing wheelies flying down the road, and we have one shot, and as soon as he hits it, we have a massive explosion. Well, there you go. He's doing wheelies. The underside is exposed. That's where all the flammable stuff is. Oh, it is bullshit. Hold now, on. Now, I, hold my, on. I, I'm going to go back to your my, question. All right. It's less bullshit to blow up yes, a motorcycle than exactly. it is a car. Okay. Absolutely, it's less. But this isn't the first or only time we're going to get a bunch of cars blown up with gunshots in this movie. And the more it happened, the more I was like, I'm only <laughs> watching this so Cooper can fucking troll the shit out of me right now. <laughs> well, that makes us even for all the times you trolled me on this fucking podcast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it seems like Tom Cody's plan has worked out. He cuts Ellen free and hustles her down to the car while McCoy covers them. And after successfully getting her to the car, he takes out a few more of the bikers to buy them time to escape. He's about to ride out himself when Willem Dafoe steps out of the smoke and fire for a preliminary showdown full of extreme close-ups and intense looks. No fight yet, though, as Cody points out that he's got the gun and Dafoe promises to get some guns of his own. I can get guns, smart guy, lots of them. And meet up with him later. Yeah, this scene is kind of fun. They get her out really easily. I was surprised at how quickly Tom and McCoy are able to get Ellen out of this place. It doesn't seem like the motorcycle people have a lot of weapons, so their guns are very effective here. 
I was surprised that Tom was like, okay, you guys drive off and I will slow them down. This seemed like a weird strategy to me. They could have all just hopped in the car and got away, but Tom wanted to make sure that he slowed down the bikers from following them. Well, they got motorcycles. They're going to chase them unless he takes them out. Well, which is fair. So he does this thing where he smashes his rifle on some pipes that just happen to be sticking out of the ground, and then they start spilling liquid. He lights them on fire and it blows up, and we do get that intense shot you talked about where he and Raven are heads up and they're kind of like close-up city just back and forth. It's pretty good. Like, it's it's a good job of building it. This is where I feel like this would be great on a stage. Yeah. If you could set up that little, like, head-to-head on a stage, it would have been really good. just circling the two of them. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that being really, really good. But, so, he buys this time, and then he runs off. What is, he takes one of the gang's bikes and gets out of there. He, he's going to go try to meet up with the rest of the crew. Which he does at the rendezvous point. And uh, speaking of intense looks, Tom and Ellen air out some of their old emotions in a passionate conversation. The kind of passion that can only be stirred up by an old flame. Uh, <laughs> Perfect. Connection to the beer. Are currently consuming this brunette, just like both Tom and uh, our friend uh, Fish have before. Well, that's the thing. This is where McCoy breaks the news to Rick Moranis that he was not caller number one in the Ellen Aim Vaginathon. <laughs> So he was upset. He uh, he sort of tells Ellen really quickly that Tom's not there to get her back for romance, though. He's there because he's going to pay him some money. Tom and Ellen are going to leave things at a frosty impasse for now. And from there, we launch into a mini montage set to the song Sorcerer. That's basically them moving through the streets until an Ellen Aim fangirl recognizes them and tells them they better watch out because the cops are looking for whoever hit the battery that night. Cody knows they've got to get out of sight, so he stops a passing tour bus and asks for a ride. The driver says, nobody tells me where to take my bus, but as soon as Tom Cody shows his gun, he immediately reverses course. Well, we're very flexible. We take you where you want to go, anywhere you want to go. You just say the word and we with you. You folks just hop right in. Just make yourself at home. That's enjoyable. I like that reversal. Yeah, this section is weirdly paced to me. It felt kind of slow, mostly in the way that they're trying to escape before they meet that fan. This fan is also weird and hilarious. She just shows up, says she's Ellen's biggest fan, and then joins their crew. They just bring her along. Yeah, so strange. Yeah, they just joins her crew, and then we get this bus, and they're in this weird situation now where they have a bus full of people kind of brought together strangely, and they need to get out of here. But we also find out from that fan the police are kind of looking for them, going to prevent them from getting away. Definitely. That's why they need the bus, and it turns out this bus belongs to a group called the Sorrells. They're sort of a doo-wop R&B type group. Apparently, they've been having a hard time getting things going, but maybe since they're helping her out, Ellen Aim can let them open for her, maybe? This is 100% going to happen at the end of this movie, if that isn't clear. Uh, They're rolling along okay until some car trouble strands them, which gives the fangirl time to pick Ellen's brain about performing, and also gives Rick Moranis a chance to try to assert his dominance over Tom Cody. He tells Cody that he better deal with the fact that Ellen is his girl now and that he does the kind of real-world adulty stuff that her that Tom Cody never could. Cody's response here is basically to walk over and be like, I have a much, much bigger c*** than you. So that's the hell's that. Although Rick Moranis does muster up a half-hearted, keep your hands off the suit, buddy. <laughs> yeah, this relationship between Tom and Fish is kind of brutal, right? We, we all know that Ellen in her heart, really wants to be with the Tom character and not the fish one. But she also wants to see her career succeed. And I guess at the end, we're going to find out which way it goes. Oh, we definitely are. Now, they get up and running again, but a police roadblock threatens to blow the whole deal, which means it's time for some role play. Here's the plan. They all work for the Sorrells. McCoy is the bus driver. Billy Fish is the manager. Tom Cody is like a grip or something. And Ellen and the fangirl are groupies, I guess. That part isn't totally clear. Moranis is like, no problem, guys, I got this, and then immediately blows it. So, in what is maybe the most ridiculous part of this movie, Cody and McCoy pull out their guns and somehow convince a dozen armed cops who already have their guns out to surrender. What the hell? (laughs) I mean, yeah, they didn't sell it well enough. I think maybe if that fan had him going on a couple of the band members or something, it would (laughs) have... Jesus Christ. (laughs) But seriously, what are those women doing in the bus? They never made that clear. Yeah, they didn't. Um... It is hilarious that McCoy and our Cody character are just so convincing with guns. They just Maybe they police know that the soldiers are just so superior to them that they have to put down their guns. They're going to show them in a second that they know how to shoot them because this is the second time in this fucking movie where I'm about to get trolled. Yeah, this is where there's a lot of explosions. They kind of shoot their way out of there and get away somehow. Ditch the bus and hop on the L train, which means that they're home free, right? 
Except as Fish walks out into her car after a quick stop at the police station, we hear the unmistakable sound of a motorcycle revving. A crowd of Alan Aim fans parts to reveal Willem Dafoe's number two man who tells the cops that the bombers want Tom Cody. I'm still having trouble getting over the cars all being exploded by gunshots, but we're going to move past that. You're right. They take the train, they get away, and we're about to get our ultimate showdown, right? We're going to get that showdown with Tom and with Raven. We have a little bit of a moment here before it actually goes down, right? I think the police chief has a meeting with Raven and the leaders of the gang. Yeah, for a minute, it seems like this fight is going to happen with the unofficial or even official approval of the police department. It's weird, right? But he tells Tom to get the fuck out of town, right? He wants him to leave, and they want to arrest Raven. They want to put an end to this motorcycle gang, and... It seems like at first Tom is going to go along with this. Well, yeah, you'd think this decision would be easy because at this point, Tom Cody has basically managed to alienate everyone in his life. Ellen, McCoy, his sister, kind of. But before he can do this, he pays one last visit to Ellen and Billy Fish to tell her off and get his money. Well, not his money. He takes the $1,000 he promised McCoy and throws the rest in Rick Moranis' face. Fuck you, Rick Moranis. (laughs) (laughs) it's funny you're the one in this movie fighting against the class system here right you hate rick and his his money you are fighting for the people and i love this side of you i just think he was miscast and he's very maybe not because he's actually very good at playing like a smarmy dick who should not be talking to tom cody the way he's talking to tom cody i mean you've fallen for tom a little bit here you know what he's dreamy i have yeah Yeah, i I think so I you know but you know who else has Ellen Aim, because after his harsh words and sudden show of integrity, it brings back all the old feelings for her. And she chases him out into the rain, where they share a steamy, incredibly romantic kiss. And after a quick bang session, she tells him all of the things he's ever wanted to hear. Things like, I want to go with you. We could be together. You'd really come along with me? In two seconds, I would. And although this has to be music to his ears, we know that this is the kind of dream-filled aftertalk that never comes true. Spoiler alert. The kiss is one of those moments where it's in the rain. Like, we yes. get the full rainfall. The music in the background is romantic as possible. When they transition, they transition to them being naked in bed with a cover on them. We don't see anything, unfortunately. We don't. But that's okay. They are still fucking soaked. Yep. Like, they didn't dry off at all. Or it was really quick. You just think it happened super fast, so Tom it was Cody. over? Yeah, it was just over. Two pump Tom. I was, it may be, like, in this sense, maybe Rick is the bigger man. If he can do more than two pumps, I'm not sure, because <laughs> it happened so fast. I couldn't understand why they were still so soaked, and I was like, this has to be from the rain. It's not from, like, sweating from the activities they just undertook. They needed to put a little bit more thought into where we would find them, I think. Well, we find them in bed, but after toweling off, Tom heads to Bill Paxton's bar where he pays McCoy and apologizes for being a dick to her. They cheers the couple of double shots and walk out into the night where he tells McCoy that he needs her help with Ellen. See, Tom knows their love can never be, and he also knows the bombers are going to terrorize the town unless he stops them. So what he needs is to get Ellen out of the way while he goes to take on Willem Dafoe. You know, to make sure she doesn't get hurt. So what does he do? Knocks her out and has McCoy take her on the train to a safe neighborhood. Uh, aggressive much there, Tom Cody? Yeah, this was pretty shocking. I was trying to decide when this conversation started, and even quite a ways into it, if he was proposing a threesome. With with McCoy? (laughs) Yeah. I need your help with something? Yeah, I couldn't quite understand. And it wasn't until he physically punches out Ellen that I was like, oh... That is a bold move. Like, I don't know, maybe just jump off at the next stop or something. They might have done the trick, you know? Absolutely. The fact that he had to knock her out by punching her was the strangest way to show someone you care about them. Like, this would never happen in a movie now. No, you're right. You could never get away with this now. But either way, it's showdown time, as the bombers have sealed off the old neighborhood and showed up in big numbers to hold off the cops and make sure this thing happens. You know, unless Rick Moranis can talk them out of it. Spoiler alert, he does not. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he's not, he not, no, he's not able to talk them out of it. Speaking um, of getting punched in the face. Holy shit. Uh, yeah, that part is actually quite excellent. What I'm curious about here, though, is why our bartender Clyde is there. We've got all the police out there, and the only kind of citizen from the area who's out there is Bill Paxton. Well, the only citizen for now. He says he wants to see fucking Raven run when Tom Cody shows up. It's true. I just thought it was funny or kind of convenient that he was there. So we have him there, and then we have... 
the police all lined up with their guns drawn, and then Raven and two of his lieutenants pull up. Yeah, but then they blast an air horn, and like 300 other bikers show up, and the cops, like, this part fucking kills me. Tom Cody rolls in, and the police, because they are extremely outnumbered suddenly, basically sign off on the whole thing. The chief says to him, Well, my plan went to shit. Let's see how you do. Kick his ass. So they're going to fight. The cops are okay with this all of a sudden. Yeah, this whole thing is pretty hilarious, right? We've got a huge group of bikers on one side, and then we've got a huge group of police on the other. And then we also have Clyde or Bill Paxton run off and bring a whole bunch of our sort of like other crew here with guns too. And now we're going to get a mano a mano fight between Tom and Raven. And this isn't just going to be any kind of fight. What are they going to use to battle here? Uh, It's some kind of like mining hammers. Yeah, they look like giant sledgehammers or rock-breaking hammers. And they're just going to try to kill each other with these fucking giant hammers. Which they do try and do. And this is the point where Willem Dafoe's facial expressions are fucking hilarious. What a great preview for the rest of his career. (laughs) It really is. You could have cut his facial expressions from this movie and put them into the rest of the movies for his entire career. And it would have been exactly the same. Many of the faces were the same as when he was fucking Madonna in... Cody disarms him here, but he's not going to cave some dude's head in with a pickaxe or whatever, so he drops it, and they go to the fist. Now, it's back and forth for a minute, and Defoe takes a hell of an ass-kicking, but eventually, all Cody has to do is gently push him over, because he's out on his feet. Tom Cody wins. What a decent fight, though. It was good. It was, like, legit back and forth. Yeah, it was really good. Both were getting some good beats on each other. Both of them took a few whacks with those fucking, like, digging hammers and then some good punches. A few too many, like, domino bike fallovers for me, I think, in this one. <laughs> they were, It's always funny, right, when you see bikes lined up in, in a row and you see a guy crash into them and they all start falling over. But a, a good fight overall. I thought it was a decent kind of battle. This almost felt choreographed like would play on a stage. Like, this is why I think it would go. Yeah, so I really this, think yeah. so. It's happening. We're going to make this musical. There you go. Well, this is over now, but what about all the rest of the bombers? As you mentioned, during the skirmish, the rest of the town came out to see what happened, and it turns out they brought all the guns. Literally every citizen has a gun. America! (laughs) Yeah, every single one of those guys dressed up had rifles, and they have them all drawn on the bikers. And the bikers understand now that their leader's been defeated, and there's no point in them getting hurt. So they roll out. They do, and we're going to book on this thing with another Ellen Aim concert, except this time she's got an opening act. It's the Sorrells, as we all knew was going to happen. They perform I Can Dream About You, which was a decent-sized hit in the 80s, and they absolutely kill it. This was a hit? This was a like a song that we... Decent-sized like, hit, yeah. That's cool. It was a really good or entertaining performance for sure, so they put on a good show, and then we're going to very shortly transition to seeing Ellen come on, but before she can, they have a little conversation here. Well, yeah, we hear Rick Moranis telling all kinds of people that he's going to take the Sorrells right to the top, including Tom Cody. Now, Cody tells Fish that he's leaving town to take care of Ellen, Rick Moranis is kind of confused here, but Cody rightly points out that he can't give her the kinds of things he needs, no matter how enormous his c*** is, and he heads over to say goodbye to Ellen now. She asks if he's leaving, but she already knows the answer, and after pressing on if there's anything else he has to say, he delivers a great hero line. Look, I know you're going to be going places with your singing and stuff, and I'm not the kind of guy to be carrying guitars around for you, but if you ever need me for something, I'll be there. What a man. (laughs) So he's doing the, like, if you really love it, you need to let it go here, right? Like, this is, you can't trap a bird, you need to let it be free, and heroes do that. They, They know that they sometimes need to let the person they love go so that that person can succeed, and he'll be there when it's over or if she needs him. When the rain begins to fall. Oh, (laughs) absolutely. We know that they like getting it on when she gets wet or he gets wet too. Um, So he he walks away as she walks on stage and we see a little bit of a performance from Ellen. After a passionate kiss, they have one more kiss. And yes, Ellen Aim takes the stage and launches into the big final number. Tonight is what it means to be young. She is center stage, is belting this out, and he pauses the doorway to take one last look. Now, I could be wrong, but I think I saw a tear in his eye there, you know? Tom Cody, he knows that some love is temporary, and the world has other plans. Fuck, I'm getting choked up now. I mean, as she's singing, the boy will be the next best thing to an angel. He's walking away, right? Like, this is her fucking angel leaving right now. He has to. He knows he needs to to let her soar, but tonight is what it means to be young, man. This is a great song. 
So good. Yeah, they really open and close strong in this movie. The Sorrells are behind her, dancing and singing back up. The crowd is into it, and we get a great pullout shot of her dead center. The lights are going. They needed more of this in the movie. Yeah, I, they did do that thing where they snuck it in a little bit, where we had those kind of transitions between things that were happening in the movie and her singing. It would have been nice to see a couple more of these performances because they are absolutely captivating. Why did this thing bomb so hard? I don't really know either. I guess we'll get into our ratings in a second. But first, we should say that we do end the movie with Tom Cody walking out into the street. McCoy's there in his old car. He jumps in. They drive away. And the credits roll. But yeah, like, I don't really know. It's got a lot of things going for it. It does kind of feel a little bit like a B-movie at times. Like, no real stars. A lot of young people who now we recognize as stars, but at the time, they were young actors. So not a lot of name value, maybe on the marquee, and parts of this do seem a little, like, kind of midnight movie-ish. But, like, I dig that stuff. I don't know. Maybe not the general population. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised at it being such a flop, right? I, it feels to me, and I'm, we're about to get into our ratings very soon, but it feels to me that both the quality of music and sort of cinematography and action and pacing was all really really fun i can't imagine you going and seeing this movie and not enjoying the time you had yeah, no like, one's walking out angry no one's walking no. out being upset at the money they spent seeing this movie so it seems strange to me that this was so poorly received i wonder if it just had like horrible marketing maybe the marketing team for this movie was just fucking brutal or maybe the timing around when it was released wasn't right for the sort of style or feel of the movie i don't know but i agree with you that this probably should have done better than it did and what a great way to segue into our ratings if you're just joining us for the first time the way we do this we rate the movie on a scale of one to ten two times one to ten for how bad it is one to ten for how enjoyable and the goal is to find movies that are a 10 out of 10 on both scales or as we call it the crit 20 and for me, I kind of don't think this is a bad movie. Like, it's a little bad. Don't get me wrong. There are some problems with it. The weakest point here is probably the acting. Diane Lane doesn't quite have it yet. Willem Dafoe is kind of cartoony, which works in some places but not in others. And there are definitely times when the guy who plays Tom Cody seems to be doing his best Sylvester Stallone impression. You know what I mean? It's yeah. a little monotone. So that was my biggest problem, I think, with the entire movie was the line delivery by Tom. Yeah. Like everything else to me, like, just it was only when it was, like, dialogue between two people and he was involved, I really struggled with it. The rest of the time, I had trouble discerning this as a bad movie. Yeah, I mean, I think this helps, too. The soundtrack... Just another great 80s soundtrack. Like, that decade was such hot fire for music. And if you're going to make a rock and roll fable, it needs to have good music. So I feel like they accomplished that. I only have this as six bad. The plot is kind of thin, but I really don't mind that. Like, this is a movie that keeps things simple. It's pretty much 90 minutes dead on. And other than the scene where the bus is broken down, there's nothing I can see that would be considered padding. So good job by them. Like, this thing runs lean, but it runs well, you know? Yeah. Um, I had it as a five bad. Okay. I, I thought this was questionably like whether we should have this here other than the way that the bad lines were delivered by Tom and I could didn't know whether to blame him or the writing of the line. Or the editing maybe depending yeah. on timing. Yeah. It, it definitely felt timing based to me. It just felt like they fell flat for me. Otherwise, I thought this wasn't a bad movie. Yeah, okay, that's good. But how enjoyable did you find it? I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. Like a lot. I really, really liked it. I thought the mood was always on point. Mm -hmm. Both the setting and the music and sound helped make the mood feel incredibly like well zoned in. Ry Cooter was the person responsible for the music in this. Yeah, have we heard that name before? We is he have. Roadhouse. Is he in Roadhouse? Yeah, I think yeah. he is. And fucking slays. Yeah. Like, Ry Cooter is a fucking magician with sound. <laughs> I, I don't know what else has been done, but and this probably isn't something most people do, but I want to look up movies that Ry Cooter's been involved in. He does with. the like, soundtrack for it? Yeah. yeah. Just because it was so well done here. Just fucking amazing. I actually thought that the action sequences were pretty good. Other than the explosions from gunshots, which, you know, I have a, an abnormal, like, reaction to, I think. Yeah. Um, I really, really enjoyed them. I thought the pacing was really good. Like you, I had trouble finding any padding. I actually thought the only padding scene, too, was that section where they were escaping. Okay. Where they were getting away. Like, the same time where the bus flat happened yeah, was the yeah. only yeah. time I would point to any and padding. And even that, it gives you some backstory on the characters a little bit. It's, there's something there. It's not totally yeah. nothing. Yeah. And, and I really loved that this felt kind of like a play. 
Yeah. I love musical theater. So this feeling like that to me was was amazing. I had this as a 10 enjoyable. Wow, man. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I also have it as a 10 enjoyable. I fucking love this movie. I think this movie's great. Uh, again, the soundtrack. The soundtrack is great. A few duds maybe, but the highs are like really high for me. Um, despite what I said about the acting, I like everyone in this. Like I made some disparaging comments with Rick Moranis, but he does do a good job of being smarmy. Like just good characters though. Everyone in his is a good character. Good action, good pace, good resolution. Like I really enjoyed this and I'm kind of surprised it didn't do better. Like, although, like I said, it is kind of like a B-movie at points, which, again, great for me. So, for me, super <laughs> enjoyable. And young Diane Lane, can't say enough good things about her. Like, Diane Lane is welcome on my screen anytime. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm confused that this didn't do better. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Really, really fun. I would love to watch this again. And I'd love to watch it with people who haven't seen it because I feel like they would enjoy it, too. But how about this beer? How about this uh, brunette uh, from our friends at Old Flame Brewing? Company? I also really enjoyed this beer. You mentioned when you poured it, like very dark, but it didn't have that kind of heavy dark flavor. So I crushed this thing in no time. You commented halfway through. I was just like humbling this and because it's so delicious. Real smooth. I like this a lot. What about you? Yeah, um, very similar feelings. I was expecting it to be uh, a little bit more challenging almost to drink based on the color. Um, but it was really, really smooth, really easy to drink. I feel like Old Flame is probably correct in their like description of themselves as like people who slay the loggers because it is excellent. I would love to try some more stuff from them. Despite being labeled by you as the IPA guy, I just enjoy beer and this was an excellent lager and I'd like to try some more of theirs. Yeah, I've had a few of the other ones and I've enjoyed, I think, every single one. I had not had the brand until today, but it might actually be my favorite. Uh, no, really good stuff. If you can find Old Flame Brewing uh, anywhere in Ontario or around the world, get it. Try some. Very tasty, especially if, like me, and not like Noel, you enjoy lagers. <laughs> or or if you're just I'm a trolling fan. you now. Now I'm trolling if you. If yeah. you're a fan of brunettes. Right? Yeah. Like, there you go. Yeah. If you like brown-haired tramps. <laughs> good job working that in. I like there that. We're go, bringing yeah. it back. Just good stuff all around. Next week, we are going to be watching... Our first, but not last, black exploitation movie of the season. We haven't had one yet. Next week, we're going to be watching a little film called Truck Turner. What? Yeah. Stars Isaac Hayes. Like Shaft? The man who sings the song Shaft, yes. Yeah, and Truck Turner, like, is this that their name? Or are they That's like somebody? Who, yep. Okay, they don't drive a truck. Uh, no. And I assume just because they're a truck, they're going to be plowing. <laughs> <laughs> there will definitely be some plan. There will definitely be some nudity. There might be another army of prostitutes, but I'm not totally sure. It's been a while since I've seen it, but that'll be next week. I think you'll enjoy it. I think we'll all enjoy it, hopefully. If you have not already, please follow us on social media at the BMB Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Yeah, if you want to send us any suggestions or feedback on any of our episodes, feel free to send an email as well, thebnbpodcast at gmail.com. Definitely. We always love to hear from you. We hope you'll join us next week for Truck Turner. Until then, I'm Cooper. And I'm Nolan. And we'll see you next time on Bad Movies and Beer. Keep it fire. Tonight is what it means to be young.